0: Welcome to The Amber Mack Show. Today's episode is all about education during COVID-19. We talk to the author of Academia Next about the fragile state of higher education. Then we switch gears to discuss what's happening in our neighborhood public schools with an education strategist who says COVID-19 is like pouring gasoline on a fire. But first, let's check in with Brian Alexander, a higher education futurist. The Amber Mack Show is powered by TP-Link. TP-Link is the number one provider of consumer networking devices that remove wireless pain points in your home. So you can live, work, and play in a connected and smart way every day. Uh, COVID-19 is declared a pandemic. What is going through your mind?
1: Well, one thing is uh, I wrote about it in my most recent book, uh, which came out over the winter. So what is now the notorious page uh, 23, in uh, academia next asks the reader to think about what would happen if a pandemic struck the world and how that would change higher education so that that sounds a little creepy and uncanny but actually in the, in the futures business we've been talking about pandemics for decades so that's something that we're uh, we're used to thinking about as a future tool. but my first thought was that What we were seeing was a kind of accelerant of all the stresses and changes that uh, I was anticipating. So uh, I thought that we might see the financial sustainability of higher education already fragile, become even more delicate and start to crumble. Uh, I was afraid that the total enrollment decline, which I was tracking, as I just mentioned, would continue to decline, maybe even more steeply. That anxiety and worry, uh, bad feelings about uh, higher education might continue to grow. And unfortunately, all those things have uh, come true as well. Now, one less scary uh, trend is that the number of classes taught, the number of classes taken by students, online has been increasing since like around 1995 and so that's just been steadily growing and in effect, there's been a game of trying to predict when that number of students taking classes online would be at a par with us taking classes face to face and people were talking about that, that happening in 2025 or 2022 or 2030 um, but it might be that 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 curve is just sped up really really fast uh, I mean obviously in the spring of 2020 we were all online Um, and it may be that uh, in about a month roughly 80% of higher education will be online. Uh, But I think after the pandemic, I think this will really goose that curve up high uh, and we should see a parity if not a majority of students taking classes online even after uh, after COVID retreats from pandemic status.
0: So as you look into the future, and since this has been something that you've been studying for some time in terms of trying to predict what could happen within higher education, what do you see happening over the next few months, uh, both with online classes, which seem to be the majority, uh, but also those schools that are trying to do in-person classes, even when uh, potentially everything tells us that's just not safe?
1: Well, we can see a few things already happening now that are likely just to keep going. Uh, one is uh, infections on campus will just keep rising. The students are the biggest population. Uh, they also tend to socialize more, especially in residential campuses. Uh, so infections should keep rising, which means all the knock-on effects. It means uh, some of them, a small proportion, will get sick and possibly injured. Uh, they will then carry these infections uh, elsewhere into the community, which is where it's truly dangerous. Uh, we know that statistically still the over 70 population is far more vulnerable to to COVID's bad effects, uh, so we should see a kind of you know series of second and third order infections, as well as a wave of, uh, of bad injuries and deaths spread as a result. Now, it, we should also expect more and more campuses to shift more and more of their teaching online. Uh, some may just flip the switch. I call this the toggle term, where they switch from completely face to face to completely online some may just push more and more of the content online. Uh, you know, maybe you have uh, only first-year students on campus, but sophomore, seniors, seniors, and grad students are online. I also expect that we will see financial stresses really, really continue to hit. In, <clears throat> in the United States, about two-thirds of higher education is funded by state governments. State governments are being clobbered financially right now. I mean, because of the recession, they're seeing their revenue go down, and because of the pandemic, they're seeing their costs shoot up and we know politically and historically that state governments are quite happy to cut funding to public higher education uh, right off the bat uh, so we should see you know university systems like the state university of new york or this california state university system start seeing their budgets get hit on top of that, we know that families are, are suffering badly. Uh, a U.S. census statement a few weeks ago said that 41% of Americans had experienced a job loss in their family. Um, in that kind of situation, it may be that uh, families are less likely to want to invest in uh, sending their child to a liberal arts college or to a research one university. Uh, they may downshift in expenses. Um, in perceived expenses uh, down to public universities or to community colleges, or they may just decide to give the year a pass. Uh, and We've already seen some signs of that. Uh, Harvard University, which is an incredible outlier but still interesting, uh, about 20% of their first-year class uh, skipped it this year. They, they deferred it for a year. Um, on top of that, there's the uh, anxiety that people don't really see higher education online is as good as higher education face to face. So they may be less likely to take classes, and again, they may be less likely to want to spend on it. Uh, We may see it because of the United States, we love lawsuits. We love suing people, so we should expect a whole brace of lawsuits from current and prospective students, you know, suing for tuition cuts, as well as political, social, and personal pressure. Overall, I I think this is bad news for the finances of colleges and universities overall. Not not for every single one. Uh, You know, the elite will do fine, Um, but I'm worried about the middle, and I'm worried about the bottom tier of colleges. So. Over the next few months, we should see more and more cuts. We're already seeing this, from furloughs, programs being closed, faculty being laid off, staff being laid off. But we may also see uh, entire programs or colleges cut, closed, or merged. You know, just to take a a system with 12 campuses and turn it into one with nine. um, Or just to close small colleges um, and universities. We've already seen a spate of these over the summer. Um, I suspect it'll take uh, through the fiscal year for that to really play out. Which is terrible. I mean this is bad news for the diversity of institutions in American higher education. It's bad news for the uh, amount of access that we have and of course it's a humanitarian disaster for everyone who works or would like to learn from people at these colleges and universities.
0: What do you think is the long-term ripple effect of this in terms of, uh, not just thinking about the next few months, but if we look five years in the future, what do you think things are gonna look like?
1: I think the physical plant may look different. Um, that is, we, we may see, depending on how the pandemic turns out. I mean, if, if for example, if it attains say flu status where it's a known thing it's still present we take our covid shots every eight months or so um, i think we'll see campuses that are just less crowded Um, and campus buildings will change Uh, we'll see more open spaces uh, more uh, bigger windows more doors uh, fewer confined places uh, just as a result of people wanting to avoid the trap of internally circulated air you may also see bigger spaces so uh, you know, say three rooms combined to one giant hall uh, as a result. Another is we should see um, over five years a, a kind of step back in the research agenda. It's very hard to conduct some research under COVID conditions if you can't physically travel to a site to gather samples or you can't physically operate equipment in a laboratory. So we may see a step back and and that'll play out in everything from a declined number of publications to patents filed, uh, a bunch of careers uh, set back a few years. Um, We'll similarly see uh, a bunch of uh, academic careers set back by students who can't take classes that involve lots of hand-to-hand, face-to-face work, such as diesel technology, culinary arts, um, sculpture, uh, dance, um, or uh, working on physical biology dissection. Um, I think we'll see that. We may see fewer colleges and universities overall, uh, and we may see the economic size of the sector shrink uh, as well.
0: Next up, the back-to-school season is frightening for parents and children all around the world. Wayne Matthews is an education strategist and innovation evangelist who says COVID-19 is accelerating a transformation in education that's been a long time coming. It feels to me that uh, there is life before COVID-19 and life after COVID-19. Can you talk to me a little bit about how your life has changed in terms of working on the future of education and what that's going to look like knowing now that we've been in this pandemic for more than five months?
2: So I think for me, you know, the COVID-19 really was gasoline on, on, a, on a fire that was just starting to burn. Um, but it really brought into the forefront a lot of challenges that we were having with education that, you know, we, we didn't have the structure or the freedom to, to deal with. And COVID-19 has sort of laid all of that bare. And so it, it's made it very, very difficult. So it's brought into into the limelight, things like internet access, things like, you know, access to a device, um, things like how do we prepare for the digital transformation of work? So, you know, we, we were having a conversation around digital transformation in education and the merits of using 600 year old technology alone versus integrating, you know, 21st century fourth industrial revolution technology, the first being the book and the second being digital devices. And now, after COVID-19, we start to see that we do have to really think about digital transformation of work and what that means for the digital transformation of learning. And um, you know, I, I think a lot of people are are still hoping to be very uh, nostalgic and go backwards. So you hear a lot of people talking about back to school, but I don't think that we can go backwards. I, I think that the only path is is, is forward. Um, so we really have to reimagine what school is gonna look like. And and that's that's gonna take some time, fortunately. We we have about 10 to 12 months to figure that out.
0: I think also uh, what a lot of parents are experiencing right now is just uh, an overwhelming period of stress in terms of the unknowns and I think it's fair to say that we don't like unknowns. We operate better when we know what's going to happen. Uh, What are you seeing out there in terms of what parents are saying and how they're going through this experience in terms of figuring out what's going to be best for their kids?
2: So I I think there's two things. I think there are a few groups of parents. I think one group of parents is, you know, I immediately need um, something done right now. And I, you know, I I don't really care what that is. I've tried having the kids home for the last six months. It's a lot more difficult than I anticipated. And it's affecting my ability to work and to work effectively. So I I need something sorted out. There's that group. There's the other group, which is I have no options. I'm a single parent. Um, I, I do have to go out. Um, and and get myself working. And so I I can't have my students at home. And so I I feel terrible about the decision that I have to make, but it's a decision between economics and health and safety. Um, I think there's another group of parents that are also thinking, you know what, this year is is sort of going to be a wash. And so how can we start to prepare our kids for the future? How can we start to think a bit more creatively because you know they had problems with the way that the school system was designed before. And, and you know I, I always caution parents to say that there was not a problem with the school system before. The world in which we're preparing kids for has changed drastically and, and much faster than it's done in any other time in history. And we have institutions that are quite s- stable, but those institutions, they struggle to, to scale in an emergency. And so, what we have is a is a is a global emergency, and we're seeing a number of different institutions that are really having a difficult time scaling um, a pivot in that emergency. And so, um, you know, this has has created a problem for for learning and education as well. Um, but you know, it, it's 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 very difficult, I think, for a lot of parents. But you know, when parents look up from the fog, they realize that there is an opportunity here. For us to reimagine what we've been doing and we've been having a problem with in the past.
0: Let's talk for a second about the global emergency because one of the things I've seen you speak about is those countries that have figured out a path forward during COVID-19 when it comes to education as far as school-age kids. If you had to pick one of those countries or places that's doing a good job, uh, who would you pick?
2: So, I, I would say right now, um, you know, Denmark is doing a fantastic job. Um, they have brought their classes down to 10. Uh, typically in Denmark, I haven't been to Denmark, but I understand that most of the schools K all the way to 12 are in one building. So they, they've kept the, the high school students um, at home or at least uh, in a hybrid model. And then they've spread out the elementary students. They've hired a whole bunch of new teachers and they've kept their classes to 10. A lot of their classes happen outside, um, you know, and there's there's less chance of transmission um, outside. So in terms of the immediate response to to COVID nineteen, um, I would definitely say uh, I would definitely say that 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 country is doing really well. I think though there's also um, maybe not whole countries, but there are also individual schools that are really starting to think about um, what does tomorrow look like? What does a post pandemic world look like? Um, And so, you know, there's schools that are really coming around, starting to think about what is the future of of learning, what's the future of education, and how do we reorganize the actual structure or framework of what we're doing, um, that it makes sense to match uh, students to to meet the digital transformation. And and you'll find, you know, I I know that we're focusing more on K to twelve, but you'll see that um, you know Google has entered the market, and I think this is pretty significant. I think it'll it'll create a downward pressure. On, on high school and, and eventually uh, elementary. You know, elementary is typically a place where people are willing to be a bit more creative in terms of how students learn. But usually when they get into high school, um, you know, there's, a, there's an assumption that everybody's gonna have to go to post-secondary education. And so based on that assumption, high school sort of adjusts to get everybody into post-secondary. So I think the, the shift away from or, or the evolution of post-secondary is gonna change the landscape all the way down from grade 12 back to K.
0: Before today's essay, here's a quick message from TP-Link about home networking. If you live in a larger home and wanna connect multiple devices to your network, including streaming cameras, you might wanna consider a TP-Link mesh network. This allows you to blanket your home in Wi-Fi and not just standard Wi-Fi, but Wi-Fi 6, so you can future-proof your home with four times greater capacity to connect more devices. Technology is moving fast and furiously ahead. The past few months have taught us that better home connectivity and smart devices can help us live, work and play in a stress-free way. For more information about cloud cameras and mesh Wi-Fi, visit TP-Link online. At the time of this writing, there have been more than 25 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 worldwide and more than 800,000 deaths, including almost 200,000 in the United States and just over 9,000 in Canada. COVID-19 is the biggest thing happening on Earth right now. It's the headline or the main attraction. And it's not just a big, bad thing. It's also a big, bad thing that we still don't know enough about. The consequences and fallout of this pandemic have been predictable and devastating. People everywhere are scared, anxious, and unsure. Vast swaths of the workforce have lost their jobs or had their hours extremely limited. The economy is struggling and entire industries are cratering. Our healthcare professionals are working around the clock to stem the tide. And despite the best efforts, what I imagine are the majority of people, no one seems to be able to agree on anything for too long. Meanwhile, as things get worse, an entire subculture is uniting and growing around the idea that the virus is a hoax and being asked to wear a mask is an affront to one's personal freedom, while they conveniently forget that you don't have the freedom to infect people with a deadly virus. To say that COVID-19 and our reaction to it on individual community structural and political levels has changed our way of life would be a huge understatement. Right now, there is no normal to go back to, only a new normal to navigate. And smack dab in the middle of that navigation are our kids, most of whom are being told to physically go back to school like the all caps global health emergency is not even a big deal at all. Here are some headlines from prominent publications over the past few weeks. COVID-19 may spread more easily in schools than thought, reports The Guardian on August 5th, 2020. Outdoor classes might be the best way to reopen schools, according to The Atlantic, July 28, 2020. And normal class sizes could result in five times more COVID-19 cases in students, according to CTV News on August 21, 2020. As a parent, it's hard to say what aspect of the back-to-school issue is the most troubling, concerning, or confusing. A few glaring issues that we are either facing down or will eventually have to face down include Questions regarding the effect of COVID-19 on school-aged children in terms of intellectual and emotional development and socialization. Questions regarding just how safe schools can be for students, teachers and other workers, and whether or not we are creating new vectors for the virus to spread. Questions about how social inequality gives affluent families far more educational options for their kids. Just think about the disparity between public and private school, including tutors in the emerging pod school trend. This all further widens the gap between the haves and the have-nots. Questions regarding how parents have to navigate being at home or at least working from home if they don't feel comfortable sending their children to school. This ends up unfairly affecting women who are most often the primary caregivers and working class people whose jobs don't often have a remote work option. And perhaps my favorite question of all, how can technology help? And where can we start using it to make things better and easier for more people? In the age of COVID-19, is education a priority or an afterthought? The way things look, it seems like it's both things at the same time, and that's not good. In May, the Israeli government told students it was safe to go back to school. According to the New York Times, within days, infections were reported at a Jerusalem high school which quickly mushroomed into the largest outbreak in a single school in Israel and possibly the world. A so-called super-spreader event happened at an overnight camp in Georgia in June, leading to 260 positive tests out of 344. Not all who tested positive were symptomatic, leading the CDC to determine that children are potentially a large factor for community transmission of the virus. This flies in the face of what was being reported earlier on this year. Namely, that children rarely, if ever, transmit the virus. To be fair, many of these places have not enforced wearing masks inside. In Ontario, Canada, as one example, mandatory masks for school-aged kids is at least a move in the right direction. In the United States, a country suffering and where a severely polarized populace has, during an election year, turned COVID-19 into something of a debate it's even more confusing and dangerous. I know that every family is doing the best they can with the information they have, but many will not have the resources to decide where their kids go to school and how well they're protected. Just as we expect elected officials and experts to guide us through times of war and chaos, I have to admit that I'm a bit confused and disappointed by the seeming inability to get everyone on the same page and facing in the same direction when it comes to a return to school. Also, and I'm bearing the lead here, much of this comes down to leadership and money. On the money front, five months after COVID-19 was declared a pandemic, there is some good news for Canadian kids. The federal government announced in August that they will transfer $2 billion to provinces and territories to help with a safe return to school, funds to improve air ventilation, boost sanitation, and buy protective equipment. It's starting to feel like maybe, just maybe, our kids are finally a priority but just not in time for back to class. Where I live here in Ontario, it's still unclear exactly how this money will be spent in the immediate future. And there are endless questions about why we didn't start planning this spring for a reduction in class sizes. Something that quite frankly has been an issue even before COVID-19. So this big bad thing we don't know enough about is hard for adults and especially for families living in the present but please let it be the tipping point to finally invest properly in our kids, in their health, in their safety, and in their education for a better and a brighter future. Thank you for listening to The Amber Mac Show and thank you to our presenting sponsor, TP-Link. This show was created and produced by Amber Mac Media with a special shout out to Chris, Dave, Jess, Jeff, Krista, and Jason. If you like the show, please leave us a review in your favorite podcast store.